So he charges me $69 to drive over to um, diagnose the problem. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, it's, it's clogged. Thanks. You know, clearly it's clogged. And then believe it or not, on top of the $69, $260 to snake the toilet. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was like, get out of here, man. I was like, I don't have time to clean this toilet, but I don't have, I definitely don't have $260 to snake a toilet where like, I mean, I could take the whole toilet off, go to Home Depot, throw that thing in the garbage can and probably buy another toilet for that. Just put a brand new one on the spot <laughs> and yeah. call it a day. I was like, but I guess you guys are taking, you know, there's something to be said, I guess, for people that are good at selling plumbing. Um, so anyways, you got no hot water? No, no, I'm a, I'm a, I'm going to YouTube how to go ahead and uh, how to relight the pilot light in a few minutes. Oh, okay. So if, if you don't have time today, man, it's totally fine. Uh, we can go. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Okay, I'm good. okay. Just... Okay, so um, uh, we can, you want to just do the show live right now and go with it? You want me to, you want me to just fire away and ask you a bunch of questions and let you speak to your experience or your expertise? And then if it's good, we make it into a show. If it's not good, then we'll just, you know, we'll put some bullet points together and talk about a show later I'm, on. I'm, I'm not even dressed for it today. Don't, don't worry, because it's, a, it's an audio-only show. I'm definitely not dressed for it. I never put myself on live. Oh, sure. We, yeah, we can do it. You want to do it? Okay. Here we go. Welcome, everyone, back to Dissecting Popular IT Nerds. Today, we have PhD. Everyone knows what that stands for, right? Poor hungry doctor. I hope not. Uh, Calvin Hobbes, uh, you know, the, I, I don't know what to put down as a title for you. You tell me, I'll let you introduce yourself. You tell me what your specialty is. I mean, I know we have security and you've got quite a few other shows on kind of like the human factor inside of security and everything, which I think would be an interesting thing to talk about, but I'll let you um, introduce yourself, kind of give me your background, maybe how you started off in this technology world. And, um, you know, back when security didn't matter and no one cared, but you, you, I'll let you introduce yourself. Oh, thanks, Phil. So my, how I got started in cybersecurity was I was a, a Navy cryptologist. And so I was doing uh, what we call information security, cybersecurity in the basement before it was cool to do it, before it was cool to let anybody know, know what you were doing. And so we started doing uh, cybersecurity and, and we're a very small group of people, and I was very fortunate to be in that group. And then as it became more mainstream, as more company was realizing that this information security, this cybersecurity thing was becoming more prevalent, then, you know, again, it became a norm. And like it is today, it's, everybody's doing it today. And so how, that's how I got my immersion into cybersecurity was actually through the intelligence community while I was serving in the U.S. Navy. Okay, excellent. So... What were some of the things that, well, it's, it's probably classified, but let's go, let's go back even further in time because you said before it was cool. It really wasn't cool to be in um, technology back in the day. I would say prior, I'd say around 1995 was like the cutoff point where it was really not cool. Right. Uh, but what, what would you say like, well, back when it was not cool and you were doing it, why were you doing it or how did you get started out? You know, what was your first experience with technology, so to speak? So initially for me, it started out from the uh, electronic warfare domain. As in the military, we always are looking how can we put effects on another country's infrastructure and platforms. And so for me, it grew out of that. We was looking at, you know, electronic warfare, you know, is more than just radars and just more than communications. It's a lot more. And so to be honest with you, Cybersecurity kind of is an extension 
uh, what we do today from electronic warfare, what we used to do in the military and what we still do in the military. And from a very, for, for layman people out there speaking, is that hacking? What, I mean, what do we call that? What are we doing? What are we doing to shut people down? Are we, um, you know, I don't know, DDoS attacks? What are we doing? What are we doing to shut down other countries? Well, I don't want to say that um, we're looking to shut down other countries, but... Or see who's spying on us, I guess. You know, there's like, you know, being able to intercept uh, different messages and uh, such. I'm just, you know, I'm just throwing stuff out there. I don't know if this is actually what we're doing. You, you described to me. So when I worked with the, uh, with the U.S. intelligence community, we was looking at developing what we would call a holistic approach to cybersecurity. I can't really get into details to that, but it was meaning that we was preparing a military capability that will ensure that the U.S. Uh, national security interests, as well as our allies, we were able to conduct those at a, a very high level, just like we would conduct uh, aviation warfare, air warfare, surface warfare, and, you know, submarine warfare. Okay. And how'd you get stuck in that or choose to be in that? <laughs> Um, so I was working in an organization and we was doing it, like I said earlier, we were doing electronic warfare. And then all of a sudden we just, just capabilities started growing. As we be, as we shifted from our, our, analog, our analog platforms uh-huh. to more of an IP-based platform, it, and I mean, just like today, it, those access points became very important. And we realized that, hey, there might be some opportunities for not only as a warfare capability, but also as a way that we need to really ensure that we're protecting our own infrastructure and our own um, private and public entities. I guess just to be, to be clear, did you always know you wanted to do this? I was always a tinkler. I always wanted, I always enjoyed taking things apart and I always wanted to know how things work. And because of that, it just, you know, created that, that innovative you know, mindset. And so even today I'm always thinking, how do things work? Why do they work the way they work? And what does it mean for them to work the way they work? And so I still have that mindset today. And even today, you know, I consider myself to be a, a cybersecurity professional. I consider myself to be uh, a human factors engineer. Mm-hmm. And so today I get to bring all of them together because in my current position, I'm the department chair and an associate professor up at the Illinois Institute of Technology mm-hmm. for Information Technology Management, where I oversee graduate and undergraduate programs for information technology, cybersecurity, mm-hmm. data analysis, digital forensics. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like I'm in I'm in my happy spot right now where I get to play around with a lot of everything. That's awesome. It's I would imagine a daunting, maybe overwhelming feeling and place to be as a younger person in the wanting to get started in the technology space, potentially picking security and knowing, I guess knowing where to begin isn't that hard, but knowing where to go and how to apply yourself and get in the door and make your mark could be very difficult. I would imagine. And as someone who's had experience and made a difference in other organizations, what advice would you give to somebody? You talk a lot about, you know, the human factors of burnout or human factors just in general and security. What are some of the things that 
we could offer up to people out there, maybe in the work world with degrees, with certifications, maybe they went through school and now they're, what, what do I have to offer that not everyone else with my same degrees and everything else has to offer? What can you, what can we give them? How can they make an impact in the real world? Kind of some of that knowledge that might not actually get taught in school. What would you, what would you say are some of those things that they can go in and ask questions they can ask in an organization or things that they can look for that would make a difference for them? Does that make, is that a clear question? Is that too in-depth? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's, it's a lot, but let, let me unpack it. You mentioned a word there, apply, right? And so in our program field, we realized there's a lot of people graduating with degrees in cybersecurity, IT, information security, digital forensics, and, and these people are sitting on the sidelines not being able to play because companies are you know just not hiring them because they like the experience. What we're doing in Illinois Tech, we made our programs extremely applied based. What does that mean? That means they spend a lot of time in the labs with hands-on experience. This program is a really uh, a technological or technical program that requires some really advanced level skills because we don't want our students sitting on the sideline. We want to, we want to teach them to do what they're going to be doing, what they came to school to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. The second thing is, is that there's Nowadays, with the internet, there's so many free resources out there. Even for me, I'll be honest with you, my, I'm, I'm pretty old at this, at this point, but I, I still love to just learn different uh, program languages. I use free resources. I get books. I learn things. I try to look at some of the different languages and how they apply today. Mm-hmm. And, and it, kept, it helps keep me fresh. And I encourage everybody who's really interested in cyber, who's, who, who's there, to be the same. Look. Um, go out and leverage some of these free resources. Go out and look how you can become better at what you do. Build your own personal apps. Build your own portfolios on everything that you're doing and be able to demonstrate those skills to future employees, to, to employers, because that's so important. Explain that your own personal labs thing, please. Because um, I've never heard someone know, say that before. Build your own personal labs. I want to hear that. I want to I know what you mean. So I didn't, I'll be honest with you, I don't have a personal lab built now because I just, you know, I've been, I've only been in Chicago about uh, six months. Uh-huh. But when I was in, um, in Maryland, I had some old laptops sitting around and I just keep, you know, people kept talking about Linux and all these different things. And I said, you know, I'm going to try this out. So I took Linux and I built, uh, installed Linux um, operating system on my um, device and and then I started on a couple more devices and I connected all these devices together. Mm-hmm. So I essentially built my own personal lab and then I was running all kinds of tests and all kinds of operations and doing things to, to these uh, systems that I, I you know, basically refurbished with Linux. And it just gave me a better perspective of how things really work. Even though I had, a, even though I had you know, significant experience in doing this, it's still good to do it over again and over and over again because it helps make you more proficient. And that's the thing about it. You could build your own personal network and you can even make it virtual. You can have, you know, the old Linux machines that I talked about mm-hmm. and just gain so much more experience. And then on top of that, there's a ton of YouTube videos of cybersecurity professionals and cybersecurity engineers just showing you how the different um, tools work on, and how to employ them and how to get uh, good use out of them. And so it's so much that people can learn today. And I think, you know, we got to take advantage of that. And, and feel, and real quick, the third thing here is we have got to understand that there is no such thing as people having all the skills that you want them to have when you're trying to hire them. We need to start hiring people 
on on their abilities and we need to start to hire them on what they can do and how we can project how that person is going to be able to fit into our organization. There is nobody that's a hundred percent ready around for every organization. It doesn't exist. That's a good point. Maybe give me a little more detail on that. In other words, what you're saying is hire someone that has the ability or demonstrable demonstrable ability to have, I don't know if creative mindset's the right mindset, um, flexibility, uh, ability, um, trust factor. In other words, they're, they're smart, they're, they have character. And when I say trust, I mean, you, you trust their level of intelligence, I guess, to so-called build the lab, but it's not really the lab, but it's, it's really build the, build the, the, the security solution that is needed for that individual unique business. In other words, you're never going to find someone that's already fully prepared and, and built around your business. Is that correct? Yeah, I find that to be, I find that to be the case. I found that a lot of these um, individuals who are looking for to get into cybersecurity, they have the degrees, they have the certifications. Uh-huh. And my thing I tell people, let's not put certifications against cybersecurity degrees because we are so many, we have so many job vacancies. We need everybody and some. Really? So they're showing the initiative to get a, a certification or to get a degree. Guess what? Uh-huh. They're showing, they, they show that they have the aptitude to be a part of the cybersecurity field. And so we need to look at ways to get these people into the seat so they can do the jobs and stop trying to find the perfect candidate. The perfect candidate is somebody who's shown the aptitude, who have the intelligence, and who have the drive to do the job. Um. So you said there's a lot of job vacancies. I kind of had this perception that maybe there wasn't in the in the security field. I kind of had this perception that there's like the mass um like cybersecurity is this this thing now that so many people when I see cybersecurity, I just see this these droves of people trying to get into security. It's not like you said back in the day it wasn't cool, but now it is cool. And there's droves of people wanting to get into this. And I didn't know that there was so many job vacancies. Like, where are we getting that? Is there? I mean, where, where is that coming from? Where is that information coming from? It's always, it's, it's always been there, Phil. I mean, even for the last three years, when I first started tracking this, um, by, two, by two or three years ago, uh-huh. at the time, there was at least 300,000 job vacancies in the United States and about 1.5 million you know, job vacancies globally. And so the jobs that I worked in, um, I worked in government and I mm-hmm. worked in, um, in in the corporate sector, and I can tell mm-hmm. you that there were shortages, and you mm-hmm. and you felt that shortage every day mm-hmm. because you're trying to do so much with so less. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, back to the labs thing because I find this fascinating, and I think it could be maybe a um, a way to stand out from the rest of the crowd. Uh, someone trying to find a job in security or grow a position in security or maybe, you know, grow inside or externally to into a, d- a different company. Would you suggest, would it be not be a bad idea to make a lab that kind of, kind of uh, mimics the industry or job that you would want to get into so that you could demonstrate um, some level of understanding success prior to even going in for a job interview or applying in a company? Absolutely. I used to sit on, um, I sit on several hiring boards 
And one of the things that, you know, just asking, you know, the, the candidate, what are some things you do in your free time? And I was really amazed at how many of them were like, they had their own labs. They were writing applications on their own. They were doing things above and beyond to uh, not only to enhance their skills to, to be uh, to, to be employable, but also to venture out more into the field because cybersecurity is a huge domain and it's only getting bigger, right? And mm. so my thing is, when you show that you have the tenacity to learn and that you're really passionate about the field, that's a plus for me because the one thing about it is most of us know it. When we think about cybersecurity, it's not what we see on TV. Mm. It's not the cool stuff they show on TV, all the code happening mm-hmm. really fast. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot of more monotonous work. And, you know, we have to be honest about that and let people know. And so by people, you know, developing their own labs and building applications and just going out and testing different tools mm-hmm. their virtual their own virtual networks, they see that, you know, this is not the kind of work things that I see happening on TV, but this is something that really has my interest and I want to pursue. I guess you could also... Um do some penetration testing on the organization you want to get a job at. The uh, I remember Jeremiah Grossman, who is now the Jeremiah Grossman is now the CEO at uh, Bit Discovery, but he he got his job at Yahoo back in the day in like 1999. He got his job by basically hacking into them and saying, "Hey, by the way, I just want to let you know I found this like weakness in." You know, I think he hacked like into some email account, or I can't remember what it is. He basically found his own weak, hacked his own account, found his own weakness, and and then sent him like anonymously. Hey, I just want to let you know that this exists because you know he sent it anonymously because he's probably like, hey, you broke into our account. And then they. Okay, we, we understand that you want to remain anonymous, but we want to send you a T-shirt and some stuff as a way of saying thank you. Like, can we know who you are? And then he ended up getting hired as the information security officer for Yahoo. So. um I don't know. I'm just, you know, saying like, hey, by the way, I, I found a complete weakness and breach in your security. Here it is. Maybe you can give me a job. Sounds like a might be a nice tactic. Yeah, I, I, I'll be honest. But I, I can't say you go out and just you know hack somebody. But I would say <laughs> if you're really savvy, you got really good skills. Be a part of the bug bounty program, right? Because What's this? Wait, say that again. I, I, I would never tell anyone to go out and hack somebody. But I would tell them if you got real, if you're really savvy and you got really strong skills. Go out and join the bug bounty program where companies pay you money to find weaknesses in their code, weaknesses in, in, their, uh, in some of their infrastructure, you know, because that's how... What is it? The they, bug bounty? Wait, what? how do we spell that? What is it called again? It's uh, B-U-G. Yep. B-O-U-N-T-Y. Bug, bug bounty. bounty. Okay, that's what I thought it was. Right. B- bug bounty program. Never heard of that. Right. I'm pretty stuck in networking and IT. You know, I, I don't do too much security, so forgive me. Bug bounty program. Okay. It's a great some idea. People, some people are really good at this and they make a lot of money doing it. Hmm. So this is what I tell people, you know, do things, get involved in things like this to help sh- showcase what you, you know, what your skills and, and how you could be useful to an organization. The, I, I noticed that you write a lot about the, the human factor. This seems to be, and everyone says like, you know, obviously the weakest point in security is always going to be like, you know, humans or, you know, even people that might just say, Hey, I, I don't care or et cetera. But, um, what is it about the human factor? Is there like a top three? Is there like a top three human factors we need to look out for? Like the like the disgruntled employee who doesn't care? The What do we look out? When it comes to the human factor, what's maybe some of the, the ways to simplify this, dumb it down, rather than just say, hey, it's 
humans do crazy things and they're going to be your weakness and you need to train them and make them aware and do quizzes and this type of stuff. Is there, is there a simpler way to break this down or some other things that may or not, may not be normally talked about or something that's not so cliche? Uh, you know, like humans are the factor in security. Like, okay, we know that, but can we break it down a little bit more or is there something that's maybe uh, more uh, mind-blowing or a way to make it stick more for people that everyone knows that, if that makes sense? Yes, absolutely. Let me start off first, Phil, by just saying, you know, what we see in, in cybersecurity today, when people talk about human factors, they talk about the working definition. I call it the working definition of human factors, and that is human errors, poor security behavior, people being non-compliant, and people doing things to actually increase risk for their organization. Some of it's malicious, some of it's not. And so that's the working definition. What I talk about in my writing, in my research, I talk about the scientific definition. And so human factors as a scientific discipline has existed for over 80 years in the United States. It grew out of military aviation. And so the, the basic definition of human factors as a scientific discipline it is a scientific approach to improve the systems, processes, and technologies in which people interact with. That is the very basic definition. Notice. Say that, that one more time. Thing. Say that one more time. Only because I'm taking notes and there's a few things that stand out there. Okay. So the basic definition of human factors as a scientific discipline is a scientific approach to improve humans' interaction with systems technologies and processes. Mm. And so the goal we're trying to achieve with human factors as a scientific discipline, we're trying to improve human performance. Mm -hmm. And so we, we've seen human factors be an extremely effective. I think we finally found the link between security and IT. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I think yes. we finally found the link of how we can all get along because that's the goal of technology, right? Yes. The goal of technology Absolutely. is to simplify and make people's jobs easier. It's to aid humans. It's a tool. It's not something that's supposed to, you know, I, my, my, my wife came in uh, five minutes before my first meeting this morning. She's like, the kids wiped their computers and, you know, I've got to, I'm like, look, I'm not the, I'm not the family IT guy which is, that's just me denying the fact that I am. <laughs> that's just me denying the fact that I am. And I've got, well, let's see. One child is married now, so I guess we can't count her anymore. And one's like three years old, so we can't count him. He's not on the network yet. But the other six kids and all of their, um, you know, all, all of the endpoints, like all of my endpoints and end users, so to speak, are. And I realized at that point that, she was having a difficult time doing her job as the principal, homeschooler, all of the above, ability to, to, to balance tasks and do the other three things. And I saw someone that was just so frustrated using a piece of technology. I was like, look, just re-log back in and use their, use their uh, you know, Gmail, email, log back in, rebuild this. It's like, oh, it's simple, blah, 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 blah. You know, I felt, and, I, and at that moment, I realized, I really did realize what... I guess the IT department feels like. 
from a you know from a home from a home perspective you know you've got an end user that's super frustrated you're like look it's not that calm down it's not that complicated relax you know have some patience you know but anyways um, that's from the IT perspective you're saying the same thing but from a security perspective how do we improve human interactions with systems like technology that makes it better while making it secure so how do we link in the security piece. Through, um, so it's one of the things that you hear a lot of people talking about is through design. How do we design better systems? Mm. Because we know that the the number one place where people struggle the most is their interaction with their system. And that is also the area that hackers and cyber criminals target the most. Oh, I love it. it sounds so simple. But we're breaking it down real good here. It sounds so simple because... If the design is bad and the human interaction is frustrated and they're going to do something to violate that security piece just because the design is bad and they need to get to what they're doing fast, then boom, there's the weakness, right? Right, Phil. I would tell you this also, Phil. Think about it. Most people go to, don't get up in the morning and say, I'm going to go to work and, and I'm going to cause a human error that caused my company to deal with a a major cybersecurity incident. That's not the case. <laughs> Most of our employees get up in the morning and say, I'm going to go to work and I'm going to have a, a home run day. I'm going to hit home run after home run. That's their intent because they come to work with good intentions to do great things. Mm. Now, you know as well as I know, Phil, cybersecurity, information technology has become it's extremely complex today. And the last thing that we really consider when we build our system is the human element. And so we build our system, we, build, we implement our policies, we develop our processes, and then we tell the humans, now go strap all that on and do your job. And so we make them more vulnerable by not, under, not having a human-centered approach to this thing. And what I mean by a human-centered approach is you design from the human element out, mm. not from the technology piece out. Right now we are mm. a technologically-centered type um, centric organization mm-hmm. and that has some vulnerabilities because technology led cycles which we see right now are good and they give you a short term relief but long term what happens you have to, the human performance degradation sets in and that leads us to more human errors and make the company and put the company at more risk mm. my, my brain is flooded right now with solutions for issues. You literally just made me think of an of, of an easy solution to a complicated problem that I have from the by starting with the human piece. By going let, to let me say this, let me say this Phil. The, the biggest problem, and I just I'm writing an article for this for this cybersecurity magazine right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm calling it the uh, the Denning Kruger effect of cybersecurity. <laughs> <laughs> You know exactly where I'm going with this. We, we have senior leaders who are in key positions who think they know more about the human factor than they really let on. Because remember, I gave you the definition, the working definition of human factor. The working definition of human factors is not going to get you the same result as this, having a scientific approach towards human factors. And so that, that Denny-Kruger effect is real because there's a real knowledge gap and so we have a lot of we have a lot of technology and security executives who don't really understand human factors or accept human factors as a scientific discipline. And so we still struggle with that. We prefer to use technology rather than looking at the human element 
and finding ways to reduce the high friction points for the human worker. I mean, for the uh, our employees. Mm. Mm. The the other thing is, is humans are so different. Yes, but there's got to we've got to be able to at least at least pigeonhole them into like four or five different categories. We've got un- unorganized human being. We've got someone like me with a million things all over their desktop, and uh, I don't know where are we at today. Because um, I know that there's some people that manage a zero inbox. I'm not one of them. I have 69,623 unread emails. So there is, um, you know, there's, there's those people. And then there's the zero inbox people. And then there's the, there's the different type of people that just operate differently. And how are the systems going to support them? I'm assuming that that's got to be a factor that comes into play. Well, let me say this, let me say this Phil. Companies hardly ever use any type of scientific approach when they use technology. They buy technology based on the risk and the threat environment and what, what they need. Mm. The last thing they really consider is the human element. Mm. But what you're talking about is when you say four or five people put them in boxes, you're talking about personas. How do we take a look at different personas and say, I know that Phil is going to have 69,000 email in his inbox. So how do I develop security around somebody in that persona? Then you mm. might say, hey, I got Dave over here. Dave has no email in his inbox. And so how do I manage that persona? Mm. And then you might have somebody who might got 10,000 emails and they send, they send 30 emails out of the company and get 80 emails in a day. How do you manage that persona? Mm. So we don't. it's hard to establish that in cybersecurity because the human factors engineer is nowhere in the picture. Mm. We're not there. Mm. People don't value the human factors engineer the same way we value the cybersecurity engineer, the network engineer, or the software engineer. And that is part of that knowledge gap that I'm talking about. Well, you just mentioned a bunch of other categories. Doesn't one fall into all of those? Doesn't the human factor fall into all of those or no? Each field is different, but the, the, the discipline of human factors apply to almost everything we do. Like when you get up in the morning and you say, I got a call, I got to go, I'm, I'm driving into the office. Let's say you worked in five miles away. You got to drive to the office. Mm-hmm. So if you leave 30 minutes in advance just to get to work on time. Let's say by chance you woke up late and you say, oh, I, got a, I got a call at nine. It's now 840. You know that you're going to be in a hurry. You're going to probably have to speed to get to work on time. So human factors can apply to everything we do and we've seen it applied in aviation. We've seen it applied in medicine. We've seen it applied in, in nuclear energy and nuclear power. We've seen it applied in like mining operations. And so let me get this straight. Why don't we apply this in some of these jobs where it's, and I'm just, this is just me ranting for a second uh, because I come from a family of doctors and my brother's, uh, he's actually the fire chief actually in the, in the town as well. So almost all of us are doctors, but except for me and my brother. And why do they work humans 12-hour shifts then? 10, 12-hour shifts? Because Is this because they're not taking the human factor first? How can yes. you expect a nurse or someone to do their job well? Or, you know, I don't even know if I want to open up this can of worms, but, you know, I don't know, law enforcement. How do we expect someone to think and operate under really highly stressful situations when they've been up for 10 hours, 12 hours, 
or operate or a doctor or take someone's blood or numerous other facts numerous other factors these must come when you mentioned aviation uh, obviously we had crazy guy that wanted to crash the jet blue plane and uh, one of my colleagues was the guy that wrestled the guy on the ground years ago I don't know if you remember that where they had to do an emergency landing in Vegas but um, like because the guy had done a bunch of plane flights being up for like 12 hours and he had some kind of weird psychosis or something because he had been up for so long and he was telling everyone they're going to meet their creator today and try and crash the plane but is this some of the things that we're talking about Absolutely. So the one thing we struggle with and what we don't really understand is that every occupation has what I call cognitively demanding tasks and functions, and some of them have low cognitively uh, tasks. And so as a manager, you have to understand what tasks are more cognitively intense, intensive and which tasks are low level and monotonous. Because uh-huh. if somebody's doing low level and monotonous tasks, they are not burning through their cognitive capabilities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when you have somebody that's constantly burning through their cognitive capabilities, you're going to get less out of them doing other things. They are burning everything they got. They're mm. intensely focused on the issue at hand. Mm. Mm. Like in aviation, if you ask a commercial pilot, they will tell you they have two to three phases of critical flight. Mm. Takeoff, mm-hmm. landing, and if they have an in-flight emergency. Mm-hmm. If you ask a cybersecurity professional, what are your critical phases of operation? They couldn't tell you. Whoa. Hmm. Think about it. We have not taken the time to really define our domain the way it really needs to be defined. What are your critical, what's the technical term again? What are your critical phases or what is it again? Critical phases of operations. That's mean when your risk, the risk is high, you're doing something that is really critical. And if there's a misstep, it could lead to something very catastrophic. Oh, I love it. And if you add that word catastrophic in there, it really makes it sound more. Uh, I, I use this, I joke around all the time because I do a lot of jujitsu. And you, there's, if anyone knows anything about jujitsu or the UFC or anything, they're going to know who John Danaher is. And he's this like kind of like Australian accent guy, right? And he could be te- teaching a very, very simple thing that you would learn in any other class. And your teacher would just describe it normally and you'd be fine. But when he describes it, he would say, now, if you put your arm here, this could happen. It would be catastrophic. <laughs> Which adds the um, this this is this idea is um, yeah this is this is game changing the idea that in cybersecurity people don't know their critical phases of operation or operations that's um, where their risk is high versus low not really just kind of coming in and, and so you're saying people just kind of come in and, and they batch everything into one kind of category that called security and I'm just doing my job. Uh. I'll I'll be honest. I think what it is, Phil, is that we don't really understand the human domain the way we think we do. Because remember, like I said earlier, you know, we try to we when we try to understand the human element, the human behavior, Mm -hmm. we don't have the right people in the room. I call it the the bus mechanic repairing the airplane engine analogy. Right. So you can't take a software engineer, a computer scientist or an information security analyst and say, you know, talk to me about, you know, how to reduce the high friction points mm. of human behavior, how to redesign our system. They haven't had the training to do it. It's almost like we need another job title and a whole nother piece person in the industry. Phil, I've been saying that for the last five years and people have been laughing me off the stage. And all <laughs> I'm trying to convince people to do is integrate the human factor professional 
into cybersecurity so they can help understand the high friction points of what drives human error. What are we going to call this title? What are we going to call this person? You just, they already have a job title. They're human factors engineers. Human factors engineers. Sir, Mm -hmm. it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. This is um, a a very mind-blowing. If you had one final message or anything out there to to say to anyone about this human factor engineer or whatever it is, what would that be? And I would tell tell, um, the, the decision makers, the business decision makers, to think seriously about partnering and looking into the human factors engineer position and integrating that position into your cybersecurity operations because you got to understand if you got a software engineering uh, problem, you go find a software engineer uh, professional to do the job. If you got uh, a network engineer issue, you go find a network engineer to resolve the problem. Quit trying to find people who don't have the expertise to resolve your human factors problem. They can't do it. And we got to start thinking highly and be more appreciative of the human factors as a scientific discipline. Outstanding. Very mind-blowing. Um, sir, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, very much appreciate it. And, um, uh, you know, all my best to you in, in the future and making this human factor engineer, uh, like, you know, something that's uh, more in the forefront in the future. And, and thank you so much for everything that you give back. Hey, thanks, Phil. It's been great. And thank you for having me on your show. Thank you, sir. Take care. <laughs>